Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. I mean, this is like an incredibly complex physiology. If we do not recognize that and we see Earth as this big machine and we can fiddle with the inputs and outputs, the air-fuel mixture as if it were an engine and hope to get it just right, then we are going to devalue what really keeps the planet healthy, which is life. Today we'll be hearing from Charles Eisenstein, in my view, one of the most compelling authors and philosophers of our time, and a dear friend. He is the author of a few of my favorite books, including Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, and Climate A New Story. So today we have my friend Charles Eisenstein. He's an amazing human being, um, an author, and I would say philosopher, experiential philosopher. You wrote a book on climate. And if you could give a framing on why you wrote that book, that would be amazing. I wrote it when I was at um, the COP, the one in Paris. Uh, I started writing it then uh, because and I, I wasn't an official invitee, but I was in one of the per peripheral events. And just listening to the speakers and the rhetoric, I'm like, something is really, really off here. The impulse is beautiful. The basic energy of, of we have to recognize our oneness with the planet, the basic energy of what we do to the world, we're doing to ourselves. That I resonated with very strongly. But beyond that, I saw so many of the very ways of thinking that are destroying the planet entering into the movement itself. And I'm like, I got to do something about this. So, you know, what else do I know how to do but write books? So I wrote a book on it. And it is basically a reframing of the issue. I call the climate a new story because I think we have to talk about it in a completely different way, starting at the very basis of what I call carbon reductionism or carbon accountancy. Already we're in the wrong mindset. In a mindset, I don't know if I want to say wrong, but in a mindset that is going to generate continued iterations of the same basic problem. And there's a much more love-centered, holistic way to revolutionize our relationship to earth. And that's really what the book is about. So I would say that your book um, inspired part of the creation of Earthshot as an organization, which is really to tell, tell a story and then provide sort of the systemic backup to that, so, to that story. And practically what we're doing is a lot with carbon markets, is a lot with 
using the mechanisms of today to achieve anyway an outcome that we think is a lot more complex. And so maybe just to, to kick us off a bit, like what is happening today? Like at that, at that COP, which is the conference of parties where a whole bunch of governments and institutions and policymakers and individuals get together to talk about what the future of climate policy and, and uh, other ecological policies are. Like, what's the current state of the art right now? Well, I mean, most climate discourse is about carbon dioxide and methane, I guess, also other greenhouse gases and the um, projected rise in temperature and the consequences of that. That's what most of the conversation is about. And, you know, I'm not saying like, so I know, I know I'm, I'm aware of the kind of work that you guys are doing, and I know that that a lot of it is based on carbon markets and stuff. And I want to say that that very good things can be done wielding the tools of carbon credits and carbon markets. And some very bad things can be done under that rubric as well and are being done. So in that case, so I'm not like saying don't do that, but <clears throat> what I would what I'm warning against is to blithely assume that anything that you do to reduce carbon in the atmosphere is going to help the planet. Some things that we are doing to reduce carbon are of tremendous benefit to life on Earth, and other things are actually causing more harm than good. So it's just like not a shortcut to evaluate your sustainability and the equation of green or sustainable with low carbon or carbon neutrality is a serious problem because it allows horrible things to fly under the radar. So I'm not against using the, like I know people doing great projects that are financing those projects using carbon markets. Like I'm all for that. I think we have to use whatever is available to us in our service to life. But <clears throat> We, but if we become fundamentalists about it and render our service not to life, but to these numbers, then we're going to end up doing harm to everything that is left out of the numbers. Yeah. If it's not just about carbon, what is it about? Yeah. It is about a living, sacred planet, a living, sacred earth. It's about understanding our role as life, because you and I are life, our role as life to serve life, to make the planet even more alive, to protect life and beauty and to help it thrive. Some of the things that are being done in the name of reducing carbon are destroying life. Like I'm looking at, at these vast, vast pit mines that are metastasizing all over the planet to get the cobalt, to get the lithium, to get the silver, to get all of these rare earth, you know, the rare earths, to get everything that is necessary to run electric vehicles and photovoltaic fields and everything like that, uh, that is just causing tremendous harm. I mean, some of these mines are, are literally like miles and miles across with these gigantic tailings ponds, you know, these, these, these toxic ponds that then seep into the groundwater um, just on an incredible scale. 
Uh, that would be one example. Another example uh, are the biofuel plantations that are destroying millions of hectares all across Africa, South America, even in Asia, even in the in, in North America, um, that are believed to be uh, carbon neutral or to, to be sequestering carbon even, but that are decimating biodiversity. Um, or the mega dams, the huge dams that are going up in Africa that are supposedly producing carbon neutral electricity, but are destroying vast swaths of wetlands and, and other ecosystems. So the basic idea, when I say Earth is alive, it's like a body. And the, the health and resiliency of your body depends on the health of the organs and the tissues and the cells. So on the global level, the organs and tissues and cells are things like forests, wetlands, seagrass, meadows, marine ecosystems, soil, uh, even like elephants, even whales. Whales are an organ of the planet. When the whales are decimated, the oceans stop working. The, the, they, they don't bring the um, nutrients up from the deep ocean and spread them out on the surface in the form of plumes of fecal matter. I mean, I can go into a lot of detail here and describe so many ways that whales keep the oceans alive. And that's just an example of a general principle. Life keeps life alive. We have to understand that. Can I pause for a second and just say how cool all the uh, quote unquote new information about whale cycling uh, nutrients from uh, all around the planet and also just like the amount of water that moves through the water column, something like 90, 90% of water moving through the water column is from whales going up and down. Um, you know, another example like salmon, like the entire nitrogen cycle of of ecosystems is dependent on salmon swimming upstream uh, against the cycle of, of nutrients flowing downstream. So life is an highly active part of the geochemical balance of the planet. Right. So the planet isn't just host for life. Like, like the oceans are not where the whales live. The whales are the oceans. The oceans, as we know them, wouldn't function, even the, as you were saying, like the currents uh, and the layer mixing and all that, they, they just wouldn't be the same without the whales. So, so that's like one of the flaws in this geomechanical thinking that, that looks at the planet as kind of this host for life, but not created by life. And it leads us to overestimate the effect of some things and underestimate the effect of other things. And, and, and the effect of life is especially hard to model in computer models of, of that um, generate the climate projections, because even something like clouds, like the effect of of water vapor, which can be uh, a warming, it has a warming effect if it's in the form of haze. It has a cooling effect if it's in the form of clouds, but depends on if the clouds are there at night or during the day and how high the clouds are. Like so many different factors, and life actually seeds the clouds because forests emit these, um, these volatile organic compounds that help seed cloud formation. And they, they have all these bacteria that waft up into the sky and, and they have 
ice nucleating proteins on them that help seed. I mean, this is like an incredibly complex physiology. If we do not recognize that and we see Earth as this big machine and we can fiddle with the inputs and outputs, the air-fuel mixture as if it were an engine and hope to get it just right, then we are going to devalue what really keeps the planet healthy, which is life. And as an environmentalist, this is what I see happening. This is why I wrote the book. I'm like, so much energy is going toward these, these um, alternative energy sources, these carbon, supposedly carbon neutral forms of energy. And okay, like I support that, but where I want to see the energy going is toward preserving rainforests and wetlands and species and recovering and regenerating all of those organs of Gaia. So it's kind of more of a shift of emphasis, but that's hard for investors because what is easy to financialize is something that has clear metrics. One of those clear metrics is carbon, carbon emissions, carbon sequestration. It's a lot harder to develop metrics for biodiversity. You can kind of do it, but it's pretty iffy at this point, not to mention uh, you know, the appropriateness of that biodiversity to a place and its long-term resiliency and its cultural um, intertwining. Like, like there's, there's, soon you get to qualitative and intangible realms that can marry with economic thinking with, with only great difficulty, if at all. Help me out, my long lost friend. Tell me all that could have been. And if I start to lose myself, a secret I can never tell. Oh, oh, meet me down by the coast. I'll be waiting there for you until the ocean tides rise and swallow the sky. In that statement, um, regenerating rainforests, regenerating land, saving savannas, um, often in the conversation, there's a sense that human beings are bad for landscapes. And that's sort of what we've proven out, that human beings are bad for landscapes. But um, but whales aren't bad for oceans. And so so there, there is the possibility in my mind that human beings are the whales for land. And what, what does that look like? Like if human beings aren't a mistake, what are they? Like, what is the actual function and how do we sort of honor that function when we're talking about things like carbon markets or policy or culture? Yeah. Yeah. It's not only the whales that perform ecological services, it's every species. And humans are supposed to be that too. And in some times and places have been and are uh, 
providers of ecological services. The Native Americans in, in, in North America um, used all kinds of, um, I mean, I, I would almost call them engineering methods to maintain the, the health and productivity of the land. The, like they modified whole landscapes on a time scale of many generations through controlled burning, through, through um, uh, selective planting of different species in different places and pruning and coppicing and like all kinds of, all kinds of practices. And, and so what's important is the mindset. P permaculture farmers are, are rediscovering this kind of thing too, regenerative farmers. Uh, so, so absolutely, like human beings can be agents of ecological health and ecological recovery, ecological healing, if we understand, if we value that and understand ourselves as having that purpose, which in a sense is, I, I speak of it in terms of maturity, where a child species may be just grows and grows and grows and doesn't care about its effects on the parent, on the mother. But as we mature, we no longer seek only to take from nature, but we want to give too. We want to become a lover of nature and not just a, uh, a child of nature. We want to reciprocate. We want to create together. It's a different kind of love that emerges. So how to connect that with policy, um, you can't always do it economically uh, for the reasons that I gave before. And that means that as we appeal, so I mean, legally, there's lots of things we can do and from a policy perspective to like establish marine preserves and forest preserves and to, to uh, engage in reforestation, afforestation, um, wetlands recovery, beaver reintroduction. I mean, it, what, the, what exactly needs to happen is different in every place on earth. Some of these things are can be profitable because they can get carbon credits. Some of them can be profitable because they create you know, sustainable oyster beds or sustainable fisheries. Some of them cannot be profitable. And so we have to have other mechanisms, other other modes of collective decision-making that don't depend on a cost-benefit analysis because maybe they're not profitable in money, maybe they're not profitable in anything that we can directly measure. And so this is a challenge for, for people who are working in the economic realm. I think that we have to recognize that sometimes, no matter how we tweak the system, the best decision for ecology or the best decision for life will not always be the best financial decision. And at some point we will always have to choose at some point, what is the heart telling me to do? And what is my accountant's mind tell me to do? And as long as we're, and sometimes they are in alignment. Sometimes you can make lots of money and do beautiful things in the world, but let's not pretend that we can always do that. Let's get clear on what we're actually serving here. And I'm just thinking to the, the words you just said, there's a couple levels going on here. One is concrete systemic policy investment shifts that basically reflect, you know, these are institutions that need to change. And then there's a deeper level, which is 
like the narrative of what we are serving or what it, what the human relationship is. And these are things that um, they don't have like an institution around them. They're, they're a belief system or a level of maturity within the human being. And um, it's sort of easier to decide how policy changes. Well, okay, we can vote on it. We write a good policy and we vote on it and then it happens. How does this other layer change? Um, or, or do, do we control it? Like, like, like how, how do we go about doing that? Well, we tell stories. We connect people to what they love. We connect people to their true nature uh, and to their emerging, to an emerging consciousness that seeks, that human beings, in order to derive meaning from life, in order to live a meaningful life, we tap into the stories that are held by the collective. When these stories change, a meaningful life becomes something else. So for example, 50 years ago, a meaningful life for a young young person would be to um, find some way to contribute to the glorious project of, I call it the ascent of humanity, the glorious project of the conquest of nature, the technological transcendence of nature that was uh, penetrating one frontier after another after another the deep ocean, space, the human brain. And someday we were going to bring all of nature under our control and engineer a perfect world. And, and you have a role to play in this magnificent human purpose. That was the story that um, carried us for a long time. I mean, you saw it in world's fairs, you know, you saw it in advertising, you saw it in, in folklore, you saw it in political narratives. That no longer is a, for most of us now, is no longer a viable source of meaning and purpose because that project of technological transcendence has failed us. And we have moved on in our consciousness in many ways beyond a mentality of conquest toward a mentality of participation and toward a recognition that the world is alive, conscious, sacred, intelligent. Through many, many avenues of revelation, we are realizing that we are not what we thought we were and the world is not what we thought it is. It was. So, so I, I can't avoid getting tapping into deep, like philosophical or spiritual issues here because the change that is afoot today in our transition toward what we call sustainability, it goes all the way down to that level. And it's not about sustainability. Sustainability begs the question, what do we want to sustain? The real question is not, can we sustain the world as we have known it? The question is, what world shall we live in? What do we want to create? We have these tremendous powers as human beings. Let's not enslave ourselves to what we see as this inevitable economic logic and the power of money. Money is a human creation too. It's a set of agreements about symbols. 
anything that we have created through our consciousness, we can recreate through our consciousness. Everything can be different. The money system could be different. The whole system of incentives and rewards could be different. Uh, what motivates a human being, how we coordinate our labor and creativity on a global scale. That's another function of money. We could do that in other ways too. So let's not be limited by a legacy practicality that may no longer bind us. I hope this is like not too like philosophical for people who are like, okay, but how do we, you know, leverage the power of money to, it has to draw on that source. And when you draw on that source, then all kinds of innovative ways to leverage money or whatever other gift that you have access to will appear to us. But the earth still turns and the sun still shines On the animal world, on the birds in flight Can you hear them sing how they sing? witnessed in running a technology company working in this area is that people are hungry for this deep level of soulfulness being brought to things like carbon markets and actually are just longing for it in every meeting. So I think this is actually right on point. How did you come to this place yourself, right? You, you talk about this sort of like shift in maturity to caring about the whole, basically and taking a longer time perspective and um, is, I mean, and you know, you've lived a whole life, but, but um, when we talk about the shift at a civilization level, like, like, is there something for you personally that has been important for some reason? I, I thought of this, this uh, young quote, there's no birth of consciousness without pain. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know why that came up, but uh, you know, what's what's what in your own life has has brought you to this point? Yeah, experiences of beauty and loss, joy and pain, and a um. Like, and what I was talking about before, this void of meaning and purpose that renders any victory hollow if it's not somehow met. So, and that therefore fuels a quest, a quest for meaning and purpose, and is not satisfied with bribes and substitutes. Um, coming and, and so it's coming 
it's it's all the things that have brought me back to the truth um and 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 given me the blessing i mean paul hawkenhawk talks about blessed unrest that we're not satisfied anymore with the lives that have been offered to us and the world that has been offered to us as normal so but yeah you know it wasn't that i read some calculations about the effects of climate change and decided to become an environmentalist you know it was my father it was when we went to yellowstone park when i was 12 or 13 and we were like hike deep into the park you know where you can only get by hiking for a couple hours to this pristine lake and we hear these boisterous noises and three or four young men are hurling stones into the lake to try to kill an otter like a family of otters that were swimming around in there and they were they were drunk you know and they were just like killing for no reason whatsoever and that the, the fact that they were doing that and our impotence like my father's helplessness to do anything about it was so painful for me that I couldn't, I just could not live a normal life. You know what I mean? It's like, and of, of all the litany of injustices that are happening on the world, this one isn't even that big, but it's one of those ones that gets under, that got under my skin. And I'm sure everybody listening has experiences like that that get under your skin. And I say, those are a sacred gift, those experiences. Those are a treasure. Don't shunt them aside. Let them work on you because they will keep you honest. And so on a, on a collective level, we got to keep each other honest. And that doesn't mean to shame people and lecture them about, well, there's terrible things happening on the world. It means connecting us with our grief, giving us chances to, to really feel, to really feel what is it like to be living on a planet where this kind of thing is happening everywhere. Let's not live in a delusion. And that's not to say that, that we could walk around miserable all the time because of all the pain in the world. Because actually, Troy, there is still, even in this dire strait, there is way more joy in the world than there is pain. And I know that just from watching wildlife. Minnows wriggling in a stream. They're just like exuberant in their aliveness. Birds, the birds that sing here, pouring forth their song for no reason. I mean, come on, they're not marking territory and attracting a mate all freaking day. They're bursting with song. You can hear it. Everyone here knows what I'm talking about. You can hear them bursting with song. That is, so, so we, we, when, when we are given the gift of authentically feeling what it is like to be in the world, we have access to all the things that keep us sane and honest. And, and if we want to, to be effective agents of healing in the world, we can connect other people to this reality through the access of grief and joy and, and love and holding people in, in a generous knowledge that I know who you are. 
And if you had access to reality that your own body can tune you into, then you will be a tremendous servant to life. No matter what circumstance you may be trapped in, you might be an oil company executive, but I know who you really are. Who you really are is a magnificent expression of life here on earth to serve life. And if you carry that knowing about somebody, not as a spiritual ideology, but if you really can look at them and see that and know it for them, then you exert an almost irresistible invitation into that, that becomes a source of courage. And maybe that person defies the expectations of their station and does something brave and shifts the course of their company or their government or their community. When you were describing the minnows in exuberance, I was, I, I quote you often, you said this thing to me once, raspberries don't have to taste that good. Like there's just something too good about life that is not explainable just through simple evolutionary or like reproductive competition. Um, and to me, when you describe this picture, you're inviting me into, into the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, which is actually around us all the time. I, I also remember at, at the end of this book on climate that you wrote, you had a list of things that humans sort of like have to stop doing or have to start doing. I remember pesticides use was one of them. If there's a couple that of these things that are just like, here are some hard rules so we don't screw it up so bad. Um, if there's any of those you want to embed with this group, that would be wonderful. It comes down to, like I kind of boil them down to four with a bonus one. Um, I mean, it's really quite simple. Like, and these just come from the from the understanding that Earth is alive. So the first one is to preserve any pristine ecosystems that still exist, large or small, from the Amazon to like the local wetlands, um, but especially the Amazon and the Congo and um, you know coral reefs, like anything that can be protected, protect it. And second, then, because especially like the Amazon, you know, this is where life is the most fecund. It's a, still an area where, where the integrity of life has not been violated. And as long as there is at least one place of full health, then full health can expand to encompass the whole planet. There's still a reservoir of where life remembers what it is like to be in full community. So that's first priority. And very close second priority is to restore and regenerate and heal ecosystems that have been damaged. I'd say maybe at the top of the list would be, well, soil restoration through regenerative agriculture uh, and also um, marine preserves, like take vast areas of ocean and, you know, give the world's Navy something useful to do, like keep out any kind of commercial fishing from these areas. And, and because, and, and once we do that, like life, life resurges so fast 
it's incredible. Like in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, like like species thought extinct all of a sudden appear. So so life would would come back into flourishing abundance very quickly if we did that. And of course, that means revolutionizing the way that we produce food. Um, probably going to have to have a lot of gardens and fewer factory farms, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is actually not impractical. I spent a, quite, a, quite a few pages of the book documenting how um, small scale agriculture can be way more productive than, than um, monocrop farming, et cetera, et cetera. Like I'm not going to go there now. Third priority, though, I'll go to the third thing, which is simply to stop dowsing the planet in pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, toxic waste, uh, radioactive waste, electromagnetic pollution, et cetera, et cetera, noise pollution even. Uh, so that, I mean, imagine if, you're, if we're talking about a body here, if your body is under constant assault, then it's going to be hard for, your, for you to be healthy. Like It's a constant, unremitting assault. The whales are being constantly bombarded with noise pollution from sonar and sh and big ships, you know, and and um, sonic surveys of under underwater formations to find the oil uh, reserves, like all that. Like we got to stop doing that. We have to. And once we understand that these beings are alive and sentient, then we will stop. We are able to do it only with the aid of an ideology that holds the world as dead or that holds the world as not fully a being. One of my favorite uh, um, quotes that I've, I got from a, a Kogi guy, he said, if you knew she could feel, you would stop. And he was talking about coastal development in Colombia. If you knew she could feel, you would stop. And that's actually true more generally too. Like anytime that we harm or exploit somebody, usually there's an ideology that renders them, that makes that okay. And that walls us off from feeling the fullness of their condition. Fourth priority is to reduce fossil fuel use. And compared to the other three, it's a distant fourth, but still important, I think, um, to reduce greenhouse gases because here we have a, like if we had a resilient planet with with fully intact ecosystems everywhere, I don't think that CO2 would be that big a deal. It could be sequestered very quickly. The plant life will maintain homeostasis. And it's happened many times in geological history. So it's not that big a deal if we have intact ecosystems, but we don't. So it's fragile. So we need to reduce greenhouse gases also. And then the bonus one, um, seemingly not ecologically relevant, but it's so important, is to turn from war to peace in human affairs. Because in times of war, every other goal is swept aside in the interests of defeating the enemy. Right now, we have to turn our number one we have to turn toward a number one goal of serving life on earth. Can't be the number two goal. Can't be the number three goal. It has to be the number one goal. It has to be what unifies us. If we are divided, 
if we are at war with each other, if we think that there's something else more important, then we are never going to change the direction of the ship of state. We are never, like, it's like we're on the Titanic. It has tremendous momentum. And if everybody, well, this is, I'm, okay, maybe not the Titanic. Let's say it's like we're on a giant ship that's getting sucked down a whirlpool. And if everybody pulls at the oars, we can get out and sail on to paradise. But instead of everybody pulling at the oars, there's, you know, a brawl on deck and a few people are pulling at the oars in different directions. And the ship is just getting sucked down farther and farther. We have to come together. And the only way to come together is ultimately through a, a shared story of what's real, what's sacred, what's important, and who we are. And that's the level, mostly the level that I'm working at. Um, but of course, you know, pulling the threads go from that level to very, very practical, concrete issues too. One of the most frustrating questions I'm often asked is, what can I do about this? You know, like, like the impotence that your father felt when the boys were throwing rocks at the otters. Like, what can I do? Uh, I feel too awkward to go intervene or I don't have the power to affect global systems. I mean, this whole thing is, is a worldview, but are there, are there practical things or is there a message that you have for just individuals listening right now? How do we go and take this information into ourselves and what next? Yeah. So this is the question, what is yours to do? It's a question our, our mutual friend Gigi Coyle offers people quite, quite a lot. What is, what is mine to do? If I knew what was yours to do, maybe I would tell you, but I don't know what's yours to do. I would have to take into account the entire circumstances of your life. I can't say everybody go out and plant a garden. For some people, um, maybe they live, you know, in Manhattan and that's not what is theirs to do. Or maybe they could plant a garden, but lots of people in their neighborhood are already and there's something else that it's theirs to do. I don't know what is yours to do. But I do know that that the more that I and that anyone is connected to the truth of grief and joy, beauty and loss, and the more that we are immersed in a new story that tells us why we are here and where we are going to heal life, to serve life, then we know what to do. The, 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 those experiences and ideas attune us to service, to acts of service and to life paths that may not otherwise have even occurred to us, that we may not have been aware of. So I can't offer a prescription, but I can offer an orienting principle. Yeah, like with those otters, you know, those boisterous young men. Um, in retrospect, like what could we have done? I mean, they could have easily overpowered us. But if we had been carrying that knowledge that these young men too are here for a magnificent purpose and service to life, and we approached them in that knowledge, what would be the first thing we'd say? Maybe in that spirit of friendship, we'd be like, 
Hey, can I have one of those beers? You know, hey, do you guys play baseball? Hey, don't you feel sorry for that otter? You know, like without, like maybe there would be some way when facing a physically superior force. Or maybe it would have been that you get really mad and upset and you show them how important it is to you that that these otters are being harmed. Maybe you actually engage in a futile physical combat with them as a demonstrate that that demo- like in that moment maybe you will know what is yours to do. And and maybe what is yours to do requires courage. And what gives you the capacity of courage? It's when you're connected to what you love. That's the only thing that makes someone genuinely courageous. Mm-hmm. When you're telling this story about the otters, like what was the, you know, what were moments that got under my skin? I remember once, um, I think in 2015, I was, I was living in Hawaii and 2015, I think was the first year when there was a mass bleaching event of coral. And from one year to the next, the places where I was swimming, super lush fish everywhere. And then the next year, nothing. And I remember crying while, while swimming, uh, one day, just, just feeling the change. And, um, after that held a held a conference at the military base on Hawaii where uh, all these sort of military and executives from the um from the island and, and throughout Hawaii came and you know we had a council and like you know the head of the military cried because he felt the same way um and so so one of the the constant lessons through this journey has been finding allies in unexpected places. Yeah. Like people that you may think are on the other side are on the same side. Yes. Never write anyone off. Yeah. You've been talking yeah. about this a lot recently. Maybe just say something along these lines. Cause I feel like there's a lot of power in this. Yeah. Never write anyone off. The, the story that you hold about somebody invites them into that story. who people are depends on how we relate to them. And if the fate of the planet depends on winning a war against the very people who have all of the weapons and all of the money, it is hopeless. The only way that it can happen, the only way that the kind of revolution that we serve can succeed is if those with those power with that power defect and they don't use it to defeat us and there's an awful lot of them who are also not getting the the meaning and purpose from their roles from their lives that they that they crave in fact i would say most of them on some level don't believe in what they're doing so how do we speak to that part of them? You have to come as a friend. Even if there might be conflict, deep down, you cannot write them off. It's a, it's, you have to know, you have to, let me even be more careful in my language. You have to connect with the knowledge 
of the human being that you carry. And, and you can practice it, you know? Like if you look deeply at somebody, it is really hard to hate them. The, the more you let, let a person in, even if they've committed odious acts, and you really look at them openly, pretty soon you start seeing the little boy that they once were. And, and if you really tune in, you can sense, like you can pick up on what happened to that little boy to turn him into a destroyer. And you won't hate him anymore. And that doesn't mean that you'll be able to wave a magic wand and change his behavior, but you will approach him as a friend, as a friend. about the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible the title of one of your books and i really love this book a lot um one of the things that i find people are missing is an actual felt experience or sort of like visceral picture of what a good outcome actually is we sort of know what a shitty outcome is you know mass migration war uh, continuing stress um, you know, security concerns, biodiversity, mass extinction, like we sort of have that picture pretty well down in our psyches. And we called this organization Earthshot as like, what is the Earthshot? The Earthshot is whatever it takes to go from here to the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. That is the Earthshot. Um, but it's hard to go somewhere that you don't know where you're going. And um, in a way, if you know where you're going, you can work backwards pretty easily and come up with some principles and policies and investment decisions that mirror that. So I wonder if you could just leave us with some of the, the elements of what is the more beautiful world that we're all longing for, but, um, but it's hard to grasp a picture or put words to it sometimes. Yeah. My access to the more beautiful world comes through like these glimpses, these little vignettes, you know, these little, these moments where I recognize it. I'm like, that's it. And then I can describe little bits and pieces of it. Like a world where we can see the stars again a world where most of the time the loudest sound you can hear is birds singing and children playing. 
a, a world where it is normal to look deeply into the eyes of the people who live near, near you. A world where species thought extinct are coming back. A world where deserts are shrinking every year. A world where peace has broken out in places of generational hatred. A world where the prisons have been converted into trauma healing institutions. A world where when babies are born, they are sung into the world by their community. And I could go, you know, I've get, I get these little glimpses sometimes. Um, when I see, for example, in, in Stella's healing practice, you know, where people come in with medical conditions that have defied doctors and specialists for years or decades, and in one or two sessions, they're healed. Like that, like there's a glimpse of what healing and healthcare could look like in a more beautiful world. And if that's possible for a human body, what is possible for the social body, the body politic, the ecological body, that level where, where it looks to our trained rational mind that healing is so far away and maybe impossible. Is it really? Like, what do we take for granted that makes it so impossible? So the, those are the, those are just like some of the little uh, data points that, that have come to me. And, and I know that every person has had experiences where you see some glimpse of the way that the world could be. And you know that it's not a um, distraction from grim reality, but that it is a promise of what is possible. Thank you for that picture. Last question. How optimistic are you that we'll get there? That we'll choose that picture versus the other picture? That's really up to us. I've, I'm, I'm learning um, not to be a victim of the future, not to want to know, well, what is likely to happen so that I can therefore uh, decide if I'm going to, you know, try to change things or is it hopeless and I'll just be a hermit and enjoy my life. Because um, really under that question, there's a personal question always. If we're doomed, then, you know, might as well party till it's 1999, like it's 1999, or I might as well, might as well, you know, get my little farmstead and enjoy the rest of my life as the Titanic goes down. Um, and what, I've, what I'm coming to understand is that this is not, there's no objective answer to this question of, are we going to make it? Are we going to choose right? Are we going to be okay? There's a mystical sense in which my own choices are the key to this question. Is everybody going to choose a more beautiful world? Is everybody going to choose healing and service to life and beauty? 
Well, how will I know that but through my own choices in the most difficult moments that tell me what a human being is? Your own choices tell you what a human being is. That's how you know. And by making those choices, you define what a human being is. You declare what the future will be. You issue a prayer out into the world that says, here is what I'm asking for, and here's what I'm aligning with. And therefore, here is what other people are aligning with and asking for too, because they are human beings just like I am. Hmm. Thank you for this, Charles. As always, it's a pleasure to hear from you and hear even when I ask slightly um, stupid questions to provoke a more nuanced answer that it comes with a it comes it comes with a frequency that um, like it comes with a frequency that awakens something in me and I think that is something that I hope people leave with from this hour. Is there a way f for people to engage with you or your work that you would like to share for anyone who's listening right now? I, I publish everything on Substack at this point, charleseisenstein.substack, and um, have a new book coming out, The Coronation. So, yeah, that's pretty much pretty much it. And for people who want to check out Earthshot, you can go to earthshot.eco. Um, also sign up for the open source science community where many of these conversations are happening all the time on very practical levels about scientific modeling, about policy, about investment, and also subtle levels where people just want to know what to do with their lives and how to, how to connect with others in the same mission. Thanks again, Charles. Yeah, thank you, Troy. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. To learn more and get involved with the work we're doing at Earthshot Labs, visit earthshot.eco. The Earthshot podcast was produced by Reculture Media, and the music that opened the show is by Little Whale.